Thank you for listening to the Shanghai Community Fellowship Podcast. To find out more about the SCF community, listen to sermons, and upcoming events, visit us at shanghaifellowship.org. Well, welcome again. And today we are starting a new series to take us through the rest of January. And it's a series from Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And the name of the series is One Tree, One Family of God. One Tree, One Family of God. And we'll, we'll explain the title as, and I, well, as we go along, I think it'll make sense if we continue to go through the series. But uh, if you know something about the book of Romans, uh, a fantastic New Testament letter, and probably many of you have already read it, and you know something about it. If you've never read it, um, I hope, hope that you would, especially chapters 9, 10, and 11 during this series. Um, but you know that, that the structure of that letter, uh, uh, the first eight chapters are a unit, chapters 1 to 8. Um, the last chapters, chapters 13 to 16, or tw- I'm sorry, 12 to 16 are a unit. And then chapters 9, 10, and 11 are uh, a separate unit. So, uh, so we're going to focus on chapters 9, 10, and 11. Uh, now, now, just to get kind of broadening, you know, kind of going wide angle here, um, the, the first eight chapters are, are a tremendous doctrinal statement. Uh, and I don't say that to hopefully turn you off to reading it. But it's rich. It's very deep. If you've not read Romans chapters one through eight, uh, it's it's very deep and very rich. You, you, you could spend a lot of time there, and and it would be worth your time for sure. Um, uh, it's probably the most comprehensive, singular doctrinal statement in all of the New Testament. Um, uh, and Paul really lays out the, the very foundations of Christianity in those chapters. Awesome, right? Um, and, and the last bit from chapters 12 to the end to 16 is very much like the personal letter you've come to expect from the Apostle Paul, like the letter to the church in Philippi. Um, very personal, uh, dealing with local issues, questions, back and forth. Uh, by the last chapter, chapter 16, he's just, he's just calling out people by name, you know, Phoebe, on and on, you know, Junius, all the way through. Just, just, it's very personal. Uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are very focused on the nation of Israel, or, or, or to really be able to say, uh, the Jewish people. Um, now, now, I like something that uh, author Scott McKnight says here, and we're going to kind of use some of his advice and perspective to help us uh, in the series. McKnight's point is that uh, the best way to read all of Romans is to start at the end and then go backwards. In other words, his point is, is that keep in mind, and we should always keep in mind, that this is a very personal letter. And the issues about this church, the church, the body of Christ in the city of Rome, the capital of the empire, uh, and we talk about the church too, by the way. Remember, we're not talking about one single church uh, made up of lots of people, but we're talking about a network of house churches that the personal issues, the, the dynamics of that church in the city of Rome, the capital of empire, inform and shape the way we read and understand everything that's been said in chapters 1 uh, through 11, including chapters 9, 10, and uh, 11 uh, that we are looking at in this series. Okay, so so that's what we're going to do. Now, now that's what we're going to do, read backwards uh, from the very personal, um, practical application side of things as we read 
and go through this series, One Tree, One Family of God, in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Because, as we're going to find out, there really is only one tree, and there really is only one family of God. And that, that needs to inform um, not only our reading of these chapters, but really how we live as followers of Jesus Christ today. There's just one family of God, and there's just one tree. So this is, this is going to be a series about how God manages this very large, diverse family that he has with grace, with mercy, and a very radical commitment on his part to the promises that he has made. All right, so we're going to look at, we're going to find out and, 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 and journey through chapters 9, 10, and 11 and see the way God is managing then and now this very large and diverse family that we are now a part of and how he does that with mercy, how he does that with his grace, and how he does that with a radical commitment to the promises that he has made, what God himself has committed himself to. All right, so to get started, uh, we want to take a look uh, and a listen uh, to how Paul begins this section, chapters 9, 10, and 11, and then we're going to listen to Paul as he finishes uh, this section. So here's Paul at the very beginning of, of this unique section, chapters 9, 10, and 11, which is the foundation, of course, for our series today, uh, our, this month, uh, one, one Tree, One Family of God. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, Paul speaking, I speak the truth in Christ, and I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, uh, those of my own race. He's talking about the Jewish people now, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. You get Paul, you're very personal, very intense, um, and, and, and he's going he's to enter in and lead us into this section and lead us into the series uh, with a very personal and passionate um, commitment to the family of God, the one tree, and God who is over all. Now, now, now listen to the way he summarizes or he finishes with a flourish uh, this section, chapters 19 and 11. Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. It's actually a doxology. It's an it's a anthem of praise. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments um, and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him, God are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. All right, so as we begin today, as we begin this series today, what I want to do is, is tell a story. I want, to, I, want to, I want to tell the story of a church that could be really any community of Jesus' people, including this community, Shanghai Community Fellowship, any community of Jesus' people, as told through a particular story about a particular church at the heart of the Roman Empire and the Church of Rome. 
All right, so let's go all the way back. Let's go back 2,000 years. Um, and we are looking at a time in Christian faith and, and in the body of Christ where almost everyone in the body of Christ, every Christian is Jewish. Let's just say it now. I mean, you know, literally, no. Of course, there are some, there are some non-Jewish Christians. But overwhelmingly, uh, the, the, the body of Christ is Jewish. Imagine that today. Imagine, imagine the, the church that you're, we're a part of um, or have been a part of, and you walk in uh, uh, to the front doors, and 99% and of the people sitting there are all Jewish. You know, you're the only, you and two other people are not. Imagine that, what, what that would look like in your own personal church experience. All right, so every Christian is Jewish, right? Now, now what, what was happening in this church uh, in these early years is that they are slowly beginning to realize, and this might sound actually incredible to us today, especially, but they're slowly beginning to realize that the Messiah, their Messiah, the promised Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant Messiah, is indeed God's Messiah for the entire world. It's like a wake-up, right? It's like the blind beginning to see. Uh, God doesn't want to just reach Jewish people. He doesn't want to reach just to bring his kingdom to the Jewish people. The Messiah isn't just for us. The Messiah, Jesus, is for the world, and they're just just beginning to wake up to that. That's what really the whole book of Acts is about. Starts in Jerusalem, ends in Rome. That's not a coincidence um, that, that this word of God, that this promise of God is for the entire world. There was a time where that was a new thought. <laughs> that was a new idea, and people were waking up to it. Paul believes, as, as God's agent, uh, in the world, one of one of many, but a God's agent in the world, Paul believes that this emerging church, uh, the, the body of Christ, should be both Jewish and non-Jewish. Now, I'm, I'm going to use the word uh, Gentile. I'm going to use the word. It's a biblical world word, and it just it just means someone who is not Jewish. Okay, so uh, it's not a part of. It's not a, certainly not a part of my vocabulary. My everyday. American English vocabulary. I don't use the word Gentile. Hey, there's some Gentiles over there, uh, you know, uh, at the noodle stop, <laughs> the noodle shop. I don't, we don't use that word uh, in every day, but, but it's a very biblical word and, it's word, and it just simply means um, someone who's not Jewish, okay? All right, so, so uh, Paul believes that the body of Christ should reflect the diversity of the world, uh, all the people, because God's church should be made up of people and will be made up of people from all over the world. Again, we're going back to a time where that was a new idea. Um, and, and, and in particular, and, and even more than just a church made up of Jewish people and Gentile people, non-Jewish people, he's, he is envisioning and prophesying a church where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, a slave nor free, male nor female. That's a quote from Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the heart of what the body of Christ should be, right? That, that verse, if you're not aware of this, gets quoted a lot by Christians uh, because it's a vision still for the church. And, and it's not that, we, we, that those categories cease to exist. 
It's that they don't have the defining separating qualities that they might have, but we've all come together. And when, when we are the church, God's people, a diverse, multinational, multi-ethnic, uh, diverse community where those divisions and barriers come down so that we can truly be one family, Paul is telling us, God is telling us, this is my will for you and this is good for you. If you can be a part of a church like that, your life is getting better. Your life is a better life because you are a part of the body of Christ, this diverse place. In the city of Rome, in the capital of the empire, there's all kinds of ways to divide, just, just like there would be probably today, right here in the city of Shanghai. We have those people and those kinds of people. We have these kinds of people and those kinds of people. We have people who speak this language and people who speak that language. We have people, you know, there's all kinds of ways uh, to theological positions, uh, you know, preferences, you know, all kinds of ways to divide. And the city of Rome, like any major city, even today, including this one, uh, uh, was just like that. And it was reflected in the body of Christ. All that diversity in the church, in the body of Christ, meant all kinds of reasons and possibilities to divide and separate, all right? Um, in the church there, in particular in Rome, in the church there are predominantly Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians, okay? Uh, again, like I said, there are other nuanced ways to separate and divide, but the main categories would probably have been Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. So Jewish Christians, for the most part, were also of a lower social status, where the Gentile Christians or the non-Jewish Christians uh, were, generally speaking, of a higher social status. They had more money. They had more wealth. They had more influence within this, the city of Rome. Uh, uh, and, and here's what happens to, to bring in even more depth to the context here, is that during this time, really just before the writing of Romans, uh, uh, something happened in the city of Rome where the emperor uh, forced all the Jewish people, Christian or not, didn't matter if you were Jewish, you were, you were forced into exile. They were forced out of the city. The, their emperor just said, don't want you here, okay? And they forced all the, and that would have meant all those Jewish Christians as well. Now, a few years later, um, a few years later, all the Jews were allowed to return. The policies changed, and you now can, we can understand about policy changing, uh, especially those of us here in Shanghai. New policy, policies are changing, uh, and now all the Jewish people are allowed to come back, including the Jewish Christians. So, okay, get this picture, right? You've got this diverse uh, church in Rome, the capital of the empire, made up of Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians, and, and, you, and, and the tension that would have been there. Um, and, and now suddenly, fairly suddenly, all the Jewish Christians and all the Jews have to leave the city. Uh, while they're gone, uh, in the local church anyway, uh, everything were, that they had been doing and the roles there where they had been serving, including all of their influence, uh, is gone. Just like that, they're gone. And all the gaps are being filled by the people who are left who are non-Jewish Christians, including their perspectives and their values and what was important to them. So, so boom, here we are overnight. It reminds me, actually, you said, what, what, does that kind of thing happen? What does that look like? It reminded me happened to something here at SCF many years ago, actually, uh, before my time, where 
somebody who was here uh, in our fellowship. Uh, he was a leader of a ministry, um, you know, uh, and great, good, you know, kind of brought a leadership, brought a unique leadership style, all good. Uh, but then he, uh, uh, his company transferred him to actually out of the country. Uh, and when he left, uh, he didn't know if he was coming back. It just, he possibly could have come back. He, he just didn't know, or it could have been a permanent move. So turns out about two or three years later, I'm not really sure, um, he comes back. His company transfers him back to Shanghai. And he comes back um, to SCF and says, um, okay, I'm gonna be the leader of that ministry now. And, but in his absence, someone else had become the leader of that ministry. And he kind of said, well, uh, but you know, I'm back now. So that person's got to step down because I'm back. And it created this tension because those of us who are, again, I wasn't here. Those who had, re those who remained said, well, it doesn't work that way. You know, you left, you left that position as the leader of this ministry. Someone else is now the leader of this ministry. You don't just get to come back and say, that guy's fired, just get rid of him because I'm back now. It, it doesn't work that way. But he said, no, it does work that way or it should and I want my ministry back. And I created a, a lot of tension. Now it's, it's easy to kind of vilify that particular person, but you could see maybe both sides of that and it created some real tension as it did for the people there um, uh, during that time. And there was a tremendous amount of tension between the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians. Um, uh, for example, what does it mean to be both Jewish and Christian? Um, uh, they were asking questions like, how much of my Jewish faith do I retain? Because, well, Jesus was Jewish and Jesus kept the laws of Judaism. Shouldn't I continue to keep the laws of Judaism? And furthermore, uh, how about all these Gentile, non-Jewish people coming into the church where the leader of the church is a Jewish Christian or a Jewish person named uh, Jesus, uh, the Messiah, shouldn't they be keeping the same laws that Jesus kept? Um, and, and here's the other tension that was very, very real for them. Uh, Jewish people were consistently rejecting the gospel. Now, there, were, there were Messianic Jews uh, in the church, of course, and they were in the church of Rome, but they were a, a, a smaller number uh, and it actually gone to zero when they all had to leave. Now they're back. Uh, they represent a small percentage in what is becoming obvious to everyone, including Paul, that the church, the body of Christ is becoming predominantly non-Jewish. And, and there's, a, uh, there's a tremendous um, pressure and tension that is coming with that as these two groups of people try to live together in the same church and in the same body. Uh, what's happening? Questions are being asked. What does this mean for the Jewish people? Does this mean that, does this mean that God is abandoning his promises to them? Are, are we moving on into, a, into now into a time where whatever God might have said or done or promised in what is for us today, our Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the First Covenant. Uh, are we just moving on from that? Does, does it mean anything today? Does it, maybe it doesn't mean anything today. We've just, we've just moved away. God, is, God has moved away. And what is the Holy Spirit saying to us and to 
the rest of us in particular, and particularly to the rest of us. All right, so, so before we go on, uh, because at this point you might be thinking, wow, Pastor Dale, you really spent a lot of time with that, uh, about that f- phenomenon of the Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. And, and I, I got to say, in my church and Shanghai Community Fellowship, all right, but I, you know, maybe your church experience, I'm looking around and I don't really see that tension at all because, quite frankly, I don't really see that many Jewish Christians uh, in, in the church that I'm a part of. And is this really an issue? You know, is there, should, we, should we really be talking about this? Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe those first century guys, when, 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 when everybody was, at least started out, where the church was predominantly a Jewish church, sure, that, I, I, I guess I could see where there was a tension back at those days. But, but today, is it, is it really a thing? Is it, is it, why, why should this matter to us, in other words? Um, especially in the light of what I, I just said. Isn't it okay to accept the fact that the church is no longer a a place where Jewish people are here and or Jewish Christians are here? Don't we just move on? Hasn't God just moved on? Now, now here's why, and you can probably sense where I'm going with this. Here's why I think the answer to that question is no. I, I don't think we can just move on because God has moved on. Here's why. God made Jewish people as a people group. He did that. There are Jewish people in the world because God made them as a people group. And they're always going to be dear to his heart. They, in fact, they still capture his heart. He gave, he gave birth to them, all right? Uh, he, he's like a, a mother that has given birth to a child and that child will always be precious uh, to uh, that parent, and he's given birth to them. And that's always going to be that way, to the God that we know, Abba, the Father of Jesus, that we know and love, the Father Father God that has been introduced to us by Jesus, and we've been brought into this loving relationship with Abba, Father, along with Jesus, where the heart of Abba, Father, is for his firstborn child. Again, maybe uh, that's really the analogy that we that would help us. It's like the firstborn child in a family. You know, uh, it, it's nobody's fault. It, it, it's not the, it's, it, we, we, we don't fault the parents. We don't fault the, the firstborn child. But that firstborn child is always just going to be special uh, to that, to those parents. You know, they're, they're the first. Uh, up until then, they had no children. Uh, and now, and now, now, now we do. And this is the first one. They may go on and have child number two, child number three, four or five. Uh, and they'll and hopefully love every one of them equally and fully. But it doesn't mean that the first child uh, isn't going to continue to and always be special. Now I have to be full disclosure here. Uh, I'm an oldest child. I'm a firstborn child. So so you know maybe maybe I've got some uh, ulterior motives for saying all of that. Uh, uh, they have captured that is Israel, the Jewish people, the heart of God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit. As we've already read, Paul writing concerning them, theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs is the divine glory, theirs is the covenants, the receiving of the law, theirs is the temple worship and the promises, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Messiah, who is God over all. You can't take that away from them and that unique relationship they have with our Father. Uh, we can't move on from this because God's not going to move on from his firstborn. 
child, his firstborn child. The God that we love and adore is brokenhearted over a separated Israel. God the Son, I, I can imagine him and I envision that, that image of him, that, that's the story of Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Remember that, he, he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. You've got Paul saying he, he, he'd given, he, he would give up his own relationship with Jesus Christ, the Savior, uh, for the sake of his people. That's, that's the depth of connection. We, just, we cannot move on because our Father in heaven is not going to move on. You know, we, we've discovered how God the Father feels in the story of the prodigal son. The depth of the feeling and commitment of love and the promise that he has made to the older son in that, pro, in that, in that parable. We, we see it and we hear it, we feel it in the parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15. We also, we also uh, see how he feels about the younger brother as well. But you know what you never hear or see? Uh, we never do find out how the younger brother feels about his older brother. And that's where the struggle was and is today. The future of the Jewish people has a direct relationship to our future. And as we read through Romans 9, 10, and 11, to the future of the world, the rest of us. For those of us who believe in particular, our future is brighter because of the belief and the day that they do believe the Jewish people believe on Yeshua, Messiah. It's a tree, Paul said. It's like a tree. He uses the metaphor of a tree. And, and, and he says it this way. He said, God has planted a tree. He's, he's like the trunk of that tree. And there are natural branches, which are the Jewish people. And then there are branches that are not natural to the tree, but God, being a master gardener, has grafted in branches into the tree, making the tree larger and fuller, right? But he's also saying that some of the natural branches are broken off. In fact, let's just go ahead and let, let God speak for himself uh, in uh, Romans 11. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, uh, and that would be the Jewish people, to be clear here, and you, though a wild olive shoot, that would be us, those of us who are not Jewish, wild olive shoots have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. We stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. And if they do not persist, on to verse 23, if they do not persist in unbelief, they, that is the Jewish people, the natural branches that are broken off, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut off of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted them in, to a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree? It's like, it, it's, it's like one tree, one family, one tree with, with natural branches that grew out of that tree. Some of those natural branches are still there. Those are the Messianic Jews. Some of the branches have been broken off because of their unbelief in the Messiah. Some of those branches that you see in that large and full, beautiful tree 
were, were wild branches that were grafted into that cultivated tree. That's you and I, the non-Jewish branch that has been grafted into the one tree. So what can we say about all of this? Number one, Paul says, there has been a hardening in the part of these natural branches until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I, I, I'm not today going to give a, a clear and uh, you know, definitive uh, explanation on the fullness of the Gentiles, except to say that God has in mind a fullness for all of those wild branches to be grafted into his tree. The fullness of that tree is going to reach a point where God is then going to even make the tree fuller by grafting in the natural branches that have been uh, broken off. Again, one family of God and one tree. What it means is that this is not a discussion these, in this series of, and maybe you've heard it put this way, of Judaism versus Christianity, or Christianity uh, versus Judaism, or the church now replaces Israel. Those categories, I think, are completely wrong-headed. We're going in the wrong direction by using the word this versus that, or this replaces that. That just takes us in, I think, the wrong direction. We're talking about one tree that becomes larger with many branches. Branches that were wild, now grafted in. Branches that were natural and broken off and grafted in, in God's timing. Again, Romans eleven twenty five. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. God has something in mind for this one family and this one tree. What, what of it? What, what is it that we're saying here? What is it that Paul is saying? He's saying a deliverer is going to come from Zion, a fulfillment of a prophetic promise. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn the godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them, he said, when I take away their sins. That's what we can look for. We can also look for God to once again show mercy, show mercy. God is a merciful God, and it is his desire to show mercy. You receive mercy, and I have received mercy. It, it, it is in God's nature, and it is in his heart to be merciful toward the disobedient. This has always been God. It's going to be him now, and he's going to be the same way toward a disobedient Jewish people who have rejected his Messiah. This is what we can look for. Now, I said a lot here already at the beginning of this uh, beginning of this series. Here's a few takeaways. We're going to go a little deeper in some of these uh, next week and the week after. But here's a few takeaways as we wrap things up on this first Sunday of this series. Number one, God has a plan. And at the heart of that plan is redemption. God has a plan. There's a purpose to, to the Father. God has a plan for the world. He has a plan for the planet. And he has a plan for people. And at the heart of that plan is redemption. God is going to redeem. God is going to redeem his world. He is going to redeem the earth. He's going to redeem the cosmos. And he is going to redeem people. Number two, uh, we can't forget that. Number two, if God is using, if God is using you now, 
And if God is blessing you now, it's going well for you. You're the one of the ones who is flourishing. You're one of the ones in the body of Christ who's thriving. It's, it, you're thriving and flourishing because God wants to use you to share in God's redemptive purpose. Why are, why, is it, why are things going so well for me now? Why? And I've had this conversation with people, honestly, over the last three years. And they, they tell me, you know, Pastor Dale, I don't tell a whole lot of people this, but I know we're in the middle of this pandemic and these are horrible times for many people, but I'm doing very well. My company's doing great. My income is very secure. I'm in the kind of industry that, 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 that thrives in times of crisis. I'm doing actually very well. Just, just recently, I, I, I just saw somebody coincidentally in a restaurant. They say, hey, Pastor Dale, I want to tell you, my company's doing great. I'm doing really well. You know, my family's doing well. Uh, you know, if you're one of those people, especially during this time of great, great struggle, you're doing well. God is blessing you because he wants you to be one of his agents of redemption. That's why he's blessed you. That's why there's a fullness. Um, uh, uh, remain. He is going to remain faithful to the covenant and you and I should remain faithful to this covenant as well. Faithful to God and faithful to each other. You know, in a marriage, in a marriage covenant, uh, one partner doesn't leave when the other partner uh, struggles. That's not the definition of a covenant. You know, we're going to be in this together. I've made a promise to you. You've made a promise to me. Oh, unless something goes wrong for you and you come into some hard times and then I'm going to leave. That's not a covenant. That's not a. That's not. That's not the. That's not the promise you made. The promise you made is in sickness and in health, for good, for richer, for poor. Uh, I'm not leaving. God is not leaving the covenant that He has made with you and me, and we're not leaving the covenant that we have made with Him. And it is a covenant that includes our promises to each other. God's going to stay. We're staying. Here's the takeaway number three: Be prepared to be surprised. Uh, you've got to read chapter nine. We didn't read all of that, uh, but you go back to chapter nine, and one of the things you're going to discover there is that God uh, has surprised a lot of people in the past. He chose this one and not that one. He worked here and not there. He, he, God does what he pleases and chooses to work as he wills and wants to work. He doesn't wait and stop and ask for your permission or for my permission to say, can I work over here? Can I work through him? Can I work through here? Are you okay with that? Do you, th you think that's going to be all right for you? He doesn't wait and ask. He works where he wills. He works where he wants to. And he works through whom he wants to. And many, many times that ends up being a surprise to us. So be prepared to be surprised. Number four, there's five of them. Number four is, again, back to author Scott McKnight said, Romans is, this letter to, called Romans is an appeal for peace in the empire. And it's a peace that's not going to come from someone's privilege nor their power. And I would add that what God wants to do and the largest story that he is telling in the book of Romans, especially chapters 9, 10, and 11, is that God wants to establish an outpost of peace in the city of Rome. Right in the heart of the empire, God is establishing a, an outpost of his peace 
in the community of his people, which means that as a local church and as a body of Christ or a community of Jesus' people, wherever we may be, including in the city of Shanghai, we should not be reflecting the self-centered, politically motivated, angry, troubled, hostile world that is all around us. But when you walk into figuratively those, the doors of God's people and into that community, that is a community of peace. That's his heart. That's the heart of the Father. That you and I would personally be at peace and that his people, his community, his outpost of the presence of his spirit in this crazy city would be an outpost of peace his peace. Lastly, at all times, but especially now, we need to lean into God's sovereignty. Now is the time to lean into the fact that Jesus is King. He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Lean into the sovereignty of God. God has a plan. God has a purpose, and he is accomplishing it right now. Lean into the sovereignty of King Jesus because he's got this, and he's got you, and he's got me. So Father, I thank you for this promise. I thank you, Father, as we begin this series, open up our hearts to see you speaking through these chapters, Romans 9, 10, 11. It's a unique story and a unique church, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and the tensions that arise in this city at that time. But it is a story of what you want to say to your people today because you never change. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, I pray, may we be surprised or at least we, we, we prepare ourselves to be open to being surprised by your mercy. May we also lean into your sovereign rule and authority, a, 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 giving up our own authority and our own will to surrender to you, leaning into King Jesus and reminding ourselves that you've got this and that your will on earth will be as it is in heaven, according to the promise of our Father. We pray in that name, Jesus' name, amen.